The reading this morning is from Romans 5, it's the first 11 verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Thanks, Caitlin. Well, if you're visiting with us, uh, we're in the midst of a series on the book of Romans, and we've been talking about the gospel of grace. And so I want to begin by asking a simple question this morning uh, to sort of summarize where we've been. The question is this, what happens to make a person a Christian, a child of God? What needs to happen to bring a person from darkness into light? from death to life, from alienation to reconciliation. Well, in a nutshell, the gospel is proclaimed to them. The historical fact that God sent his son into the world to die for sinners, to rise from the dead, triumphant over sin and Satan, death and hell for all who believe in him. Then the Holy Spirit opens the heart, the eyes of the heart, To see on the one hand the sinfulness of sin and God's just judgment against that sin. And on the other hand, in the gospel, Jesus Christ willing and able to save. This powerful working of the Holy Spirit we call regeneration or the new birth. And so thirdly, the newly regenerated heart trusts in Christ for salvation from sin and judgment, and desires Christ more than any earthly treasure. We call this saving faith. And when that faith happens, we are justified before God. In other words, the Spirit of God, by that faith, unites us to Jesus Christ. And in that union, God lays all of our sin upon Christ and clothes us in his righteousness. Christ bears, sorry, can't hear? Okay. So Christ bears the consequences of our sin, even though he did not commit it. And we are clothed in his righteousness, even though we did not perform it. And so by that faith that unites us to Christ, we stand before God forgiven of all of our sin 
and we stand righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Moreover, Christ is condemned for our sin, even though he did not commit it, even though he did not deserve it, and we are given eternal life, even though we did not earn it. This is the gospel. It's pure and simple, glorious and magnificent. And now on the basis of that glorious and great and precious work that makes us Christians, Paul presents us with five fruits of that work that give every believer great cause to celebrate. Let me give them to you first. Chapter 5, verse 1, peace with God. Secondly, access to God, 5, verse 2. Thirdly, joy in suffering, verses 3 to 4. Fourthly, the assurance of divine love, verses 5 to 8. And then fifthly, reconciliation with God, verses 9 to 11. The precious benefits and privileges which flow from justification should move every believer to make sure that they are justified, to take comfort in their justification, and to enjoy its fruits. The fruits of this tree of life are exceedingly precious. So let's look at each one of those one by one, just briefly. The first fruit of our justification is peace with God. You notice there in your Bibles that verse 1 begins with the word therefore, indicating that what Paul is about to say in these verses is a consequence of the truths that he's been setting out in the previous verses, specifically the believer's justification. Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Therefore, since we've been justified, since we have received the forgiveness of sins, and since we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, therefore, continues Paul, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we are all very aware, aren't we, in light of current world events, that peace in this world is a very fragile thing. It quickly gives way to hostilities. Hostilities end, but once again, people begin to rattle the sword. We never know when conflict will next break out. But there's a difference between the peace that we experience in this world and the conflicts of this world and the peace that Paul is writing about in Romans chapter 5. Paul is writing about the end of the worst of all possible wars. By nature, says Paul, we regard God as an enemy. Verse 10 tells us that we are enemies of God. But not only are we enemies of God, not only are unbelievers at war with God, but the scriptures tell us that God is at war with us. You might remember that the main body of the book of Romans begins with Paul giving a lengthy exposition of the reality of the wrath of God that is directed at sinful people. Romans 1.18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, God is the enemy of every sinner and that enmity cannot cease, cannot end until the sinner places their trust in Jesus Christ. And notice in this verse what the wrath of God is principally directed against. Do you see that there? It is the unrighteousness of men and women. So in order to be right with God then, unbelievers need both the forgiveness of sins and the possession of a positive righteousness. And guess what? Here is the amazing news that that Clinton has been opening up over the last couple of weeks. That is precisely what God has provided for us in our justification. Through his perfect obedience to the law, Christ provided our justification, our righteousness. And through his death on the cross, Christ took upon himself the full fury of the wrath of God against our sin to provide our forgiveness. And that is the very ground of our justification. And that's why Paul will go on to say in verse 9 there, Since now, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And so that is why the peace of God and peace with God is the immediate consequence of the believer's justification. As the Puritan Matthew Henry says, the holy, righteous God cannot be at peace with a sinner while he continues under the guilt of sin. Justification takes away the guilt and so makes way for peace. You see, when a person embraces Jesus Christ by faith alone, Jesus Christ, the sinless one, who merited our righteousness through his perfect obedience and who made perfect satisfaction for our sins, makes that person eternally at peace with God. So in Colossians 1, 19 to 20, Paul assured the Colossian believers, for in him, Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace through the blood of the cross. The objective fact of that peace then makes possible the inner subjective experience of peace with God. What the Reformed theologian Charles Hodge calls the sweet, quiet of the soul. Whereas previously it was utterly impossible to experience true inner peace because God was not at peace with us, it is now ours because the Prince of Peace reigns and dwells within our hearts. For that reason, Paul can say in Ephesians 2.14, For he, Christ himself, is our peace. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, then I would encourage you 
I would urge you, I would plead with you to surrender to the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Lay down your arms. Seek His forgiveness. Embrace Him by faith alone and enjoy the peace that only He can give. While continuing on his focus on Christ from the previous verse, Paul now adds in verse 2. Peace with God now leads to something very precious. Paul writes, Through him, that is Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is the second fruit of our justification, access to God. Because we are no longer at enmity with God, but rather now enjoy peaceful relations with God, we therefore have access to Him. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, they enjoyed unhindered access to God. They rushed to commune with Him. They rushed to fellowship with Him until that communion was shattered by their first transgression. After that, instead of rushing to commune with God and to fellowship with God, rather they fled from God's presence and tried to hide from Him. As a result, Adam and Eve were driven out of paradise with no further access to the Garden of Eden. No further access to the presence of God. Genesis 3, 24 to 25. Moreover, God placed a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the garden and to prevent his creatures from gaining any further access. Genesis 3, 24. We see the same picture later on with the tabernacle and then with the temple. The same picture, no access to God. And one of the most intricately designed parts of the tabernacle and the temple was the curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy place. This was a physical barrier that both represented and enforced separation from God. And does anyone know what was embroidered on the temple of the on the curtain of the temple? Can you remember? Well, it was cherubim. Exodus 36:35. To emphasize the idea of separation, the curtain was embroidered with cherubim, representing the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, keeping sinful people out of the presence of God. The curtain said loudly and clearly that it's impossible for any sinful person to enter the presence of God. And from among the whole nation of Israel, only one person, the high priest, was allowed to enter the most holy place only once a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for God's people. But the good news is, is that Christ ended that. Through his atoning sacrifice on the cross, the way into God's presence has now been forever opened through the death of his son. And to make this truth graphic, 
when Christ was crucified, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Matthew 27, 51. This is God's way of saying that this is the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. Now the way of approach is open to all who come to God through faith in Christ alone. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, the way into the presence of God has now been restored. There's no more curtain. His death has forever removed the barrier into God's holy presence that the temple represented. The cherubim's flaming sword has now been extinguished by the blood of Christ. And God welcomes you this morning into his presence. So I wonder, how would you feel if you received a written invitation for a personal audience with God? What would you wear? Well, that, in, that invitation, that engraved invitation, comes to all whose sins are forgiven and who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That is, all who are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. It is a fruit of our justification. And so commenting on this amazing truth, the writer of the Hebrews says this. Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 20. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Well, these are wonderful benefits, aren't they? Wonderful, wonderful benefits. But life is complex. And life involves pain as well as pleasure. And when life is up, we can quite easily enjoy these benefits, can't we? But when things go down, what difference does this access, this peace, this grace, this justification really make? Well, Paul says, any, every difference. And this leads to the third fruit of justification. And that is a joy in suffering. Romans 5.2 closed by saying that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Which means we rejoice in the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. When he will complete the wonderful work of redemption that he began in us. A work that cannot ever fail. But now in verse 3, the theme of rejoicing takes a bit of a strange turn. A surprising turn. He says, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. So how can this be? How can we rejoice in our sufferings? How can we rejoice in hardship? Well, the answer, says Paul, is because you know something. So what is it that you know? Well, verse 3 continues in this way. 
We rejoice in our suffering knowing or because we know that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. So what do we know? Well, the first thing we know is that suffering produces endurance. In other words, if something happens in your life that is hard and painful and frustrating and disappointing, and by grace, your faith looks to Christ and to his power and his sufficiency and his fellowship and his love and his wisdom, and you don't give in to bitterness and complaining and resentment, then your faith endures and perseveres. It becomes stronger. Well, how is it stronger? It's stronger the way that tempered steel is stronger. It takes more to break it. Suffering is like the fire that tempers the steel of faith. And so when Paul says suffering produces endurance, he means that the fiery tests of trial are meant to make your faith in God unbreakable. Well, then secondly, we know that endurance produces character. The New American Standard Bible captures the idea a bit better with the translation, proven character. And the sense here that the process of enduring trial proves and confirms and authenticates the character of the one undergoing it. The idea here is where you put, when you put steel through a fiery testing and it comes out on the other side persevering and enduring and strong, what you call that metal, you call it proven, authentic, genuine. That's the sense here. And so as a Christian, when you go through suffering, when you go through a trial, and your faith is tested, and it endures, what you get is a wonderful sense of authenticity. You feel that your faith is real. You don't just believe it intellectually now, but because it's endured that suffering, and it's been tested, you get that wonderful sense of authenticity. You really do feel it's real. It has stood the test with endurance, and therefore it's real, authentic, proven, and genuine. It's often only suffering that can do that. And then thirdly, all of this then leads to a growth in hope. Verse 4b, proven character produces hope. Well, how does it do that? How does proven character produce hope? Well, the answer is that when your faith has been tried in affliction and it endures and it's proven to be real and genuine and authentic, the assurance that our faith is genuine grows and the confidence that we are truly God's children increases. And as a result, our hope that we will really inherit glory becomes real and solid and clear in a way that can happen in no other way. 
But here's the question as I, as I thought about this. Is Paul simply saying that we get this hope through a three steps to personal improvement program? Is this a bit like SAS Australia, but Paul's own version? Suffer, endure that suffering, prove your character, and you'll get hope. Well, of course not. In fact, I hope you noticed that Paul has prepared us for the tests of tribulation by grounding our endurance in the gospel in verses 1 to 2. Firstly, verse 1, Paul has said, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace through God, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we pass the test of endurance because we have peace with God. And we know that we are justified and accepted and forgiven and loved and secure in God. That's what gets us through testing. Number two, verse 2a. Through Christ, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand firm in grace before we meet suffering. In other words, we don't enter into suffering. We don't enter into tribulation wobbling in our own power. Rather, but by standing in the power of sovereign grace. Thirdly, verse 2b, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Here is a rejoicing in the hope of glory before we enter the suffering, before we enter trial. Suffering is endured by the hope we already have before we go into it. The hope that our future is okay, even though the present may not feel that way. But the question is, how do we know? How can we be really sure? Are we prepared to suffer for a faith where the basis of our motivation and energy comes from a hope that we will one day enjoy, a hope that we will one day receive? Well, the answer is this, says Paul in verses 5 to 8. God assures us through both the present experience of his love, verse 5, and the past demonstration of his love, verses 6 to 8. Firstly, note that we have an assurance that comes from the present experience of God's love, verse 5. Christians can be assured here and now that they will not be put to shame at the judgment. If you look at it there, look at, see the word because, it gives the reason in verse 5. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, the confidence we have for the day of judgment the confidence that we have that we will inherit glory is not simply based on our own intellectual recognition of the fact that God loves us, but also on the subjective experiential reality of God's love poured into our hearts. 
poured. Notice Paul doesn't just say given, but poured. This is a picture of unstinting lavishness and extravagance. Our hearts have been filled to overflowing with divine affection. And the experiential enjoyment of this love is conveyed to us, conveyed to our hearts, conveyed to our sensations through the Holy Spirit who presently and permanently dwells in our hearts. Then secondly note that we are also assured through the past demonstration of God's love. Verses 6 to 8. The second thing to say is that this experience of the love of God has a factual, historical, objective basis. Verses 6 to 8. Paul writes, For while we were weak, at the right time, it's the historical, factual basis, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you notice that? The spirit-worked experience of God's love in us is now joined by the historical, objective demonstration of that love. In the death of Jesus Christ. In other words, the subjective experience of God's love is not just some warm, fuzzy feeling that has no real historical objective basis. Rather, our experience of the love of God comes in conjunction with seeing the glory and the beauty and the wonder of that love in the historical work of Christ on the cross. So I want you to notice again this connection between verses 5 and verses 8. Notice there in verse 5, the love of God has been experientially conveyed, that's poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And in verse 8, the love of God has been objectively demonstrated, historically demonstrated, in the death of his son. And these are not two separate things. God the Father experientially pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and God the Father historically demonstrates that love in the death of his son for us. So I wonder, what's the connection between the two? Well, as I've been meditating on it this week, I think the connection is something like this. Firstly, God experientially conveys his love to our hearts by the Holy Spirit he has given us. And the Holy Spirit that's been given to us opens the eyes of our hearts to see the preciousness and the glory and the wonder of the love of God and the historical death of his Son, with the result that, thirdly, we have been moved, deeply moved, by a spiritual and experiential sense of that love in our hearts to cherish and value and treasure and trust the love of God for us 
in Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be a Christian. Well, now the result of that love, which is the final fruit of justification, and it sort of brings us back to where we started, really, when we talked about peace with God and access to God, is that we are reconciled to God. Remember how at the beginning of our passage, verses 1 to 2, our justification was the ground, the foundation of our peace with God and our access to God which is another way of talking about reconciliation. So we've come full circle. Verses 1 to 2. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained access to God. Justification is the ground of peace with God and access to God. Notice now at the end of our passage how our justification is also the basis of our reconciliation. Verses 9 to 10. Notice the connection between justification and reconciliation. Since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. First observation is this. Did you notice that both our justification and our reconciliation come about in the same way? By the death of Christ. Verse 9. We have now been justified by his blood. Verse 10. We were reconciled to God. By the death of his son. So let's just briefly consider each of those. Firstly, Paul says we've been justified by his blood. Here Paul links our justification directly to the death of Christ. So what is the connection between the death of Christ and our justification? What is it? Well, the connection is this. We have been justified, that is God declares us not guilty because on the cross, Christ took upon himself the penalty and suffered the wrath of God that our sins deserved. Notice that in verse 9. Paul says there in verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Because Christ bears the wrath of God, the guilt of sin, God then declares us on that basis not guilty. And in that way, our justification, the declaration of our innocence, is grounded in the death of Christ. But it doesn't just stop there. This is simply the ground for something much more wonderful. In his death, Jesus pays the penalty for our sin so that we can have both a right standing before God, that's justification, and therefore a right relationship with God. That is our reconciliation. And so that's the next thing we notice there in verse 10. 
that we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Paul writes there, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Did you notice there that Paul begins by noting that we were enemies? In fact, verses 6, 8, 9, and 10, Paul describes us as ungodly, verse 6, sinners, verse 8, therefore objects of God's wrath, verse 9, and thus enemies of God. And so as verse 9 indicates, not just that we were at enmity with God, not just that we were haters of God, but actually God is at enmity with us. Do you see that? Verse 8, as sinners, we were objects of God's wrath, verse 9, and therefore we were enemies of God, verse 10. You see, it's always sin that arouses the wrath of God. And it's always sin that is the barrier between the barrier between us and God, the barrier in the way of right relations with God. And so if there is to be reconciliation, the barrier of sin must be done away. And that's exactly what God did for us in the death of his son. Verse 10 again. For if while we were enemies, what did God do? Well, it wasn't that our heart had to be changed first, our attitude. What God had to do was deal with the problem of our sin. And that's why Paul says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And did you notice, it's actually the love of God that saves us from the wrath of God. We must not think of this in terms of a, a loving son who appeases an angry, wrathful God. God in his love turns his wrath away through the death of his son. Look at that, see that in verses 8 to 9. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we, we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In love, God deals with the problem that arouses his wrath, which is our sin. And because God is the one who in love has achieved this work of reconciliation in the death of his son, all he asks us to do this morning is to receive it by faith alone. And so I want you to notice there finally this morning. I want you to notice the word received there in verse 11, our final verse of our passage. Paul says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation is a gift that we receive by faith alone, in Christ alone, because of the love and grace of God alone. And the text does not say that we accomplished reconciliation, that we changed our attitude to God. 
No, reconciliation was accomplished through the death of his son. What we do is we receive reconciliation. And receiving reconciliation means receiving God as reconciled and friendly and personal and near and present and helpful and saving and satisfying. You see, the gift of reconciliation with God is the gift to us of God reconciled. And so receiving reconciliation for Paul means receiving God as reconciled. So make sure you get the biblical stress here. Receiving God reconciled. It is God offering us himself in reconciliation. And to what end? That he may be the means that our lot in life is improved so that things will go better for us and we'll get all that really cool stuff that we really want? No. The reason that God gives himself to us is that we can rejoice in him so that we can be happy in him as our greatest treasure. Did you notice that in verse 11? That is why Paul says at the start of verse 11, we rejoice in God, who is given to us in reconciliation. Do you see that? We don't just rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, verse 2. We don't just rejoice in our suffering that strengthens hope, verse 3. But we actually rejoice in God himself. God gives himself to us in reconciliation so that we might have the joy and happiness and fulfillment that we so desperately crave but so foolishly seek in the things of this world. So I wonder this morning, where other than God are you seeking your happiness and pleasure? Are you seeking it in money, in work, in family, in friends, in relationships, in materialism, in pornography, in an entertainment? If you are, then you're going to be so really disappointed. When you give your heart to anything except God and you seek your happiness there, you're going to be so disappointed. But the gospel gives us God. As uh, St. Augustine, the 4th century bishop, so famously said, praying to God, he says, God You arouse us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is so restless until it rests in you. We can find joy in knowing him and peace in knowing him and fellowship and reconciliation even if we lose everything else that's dear to us. So how do we get this joy? Well, the answer is through knowing and living out and treasuring and meditating on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Through loving 
and soaking and marinating our souls in Romans 5, 1 to 11. It's as we know more dearly what we have in Christ, who we are in Christ, where we stand in Christ, simply because we have been justified by faith alone, that we find ourselves rejoicing in the certain hope of being with God, of rejoicing in God despite suffering, of rejoicing in God and enjoying Him as our greatest pleasure and treasure. Let's come to Him in prayer, shall we? Gracious Father, what a, what a blessed day. What a great comfort it's been to our hearts this morning to see that we are at peace with God. The war is over. We have access to God. The barriers are gone. We stand in grace. We rejoice in suffering. We possess divine love. And we enjoy communion and fellowship with God. Thank you for that. Please fill our hearts with gratitude. Fill them with overflowing with divine affection. Lift our souls to praise you. We who do not deserve any of this being weak and helpless and ungodly and sinners and enemies and objects of divine wrath have been brought near now through the precious blood of Christ and we're kept near through the ongoing intercession of Christ. Thank you that we are at peace. Thank you that you are on our side, that you are our defense, our defender, our friend, through Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Romans 5.1 said, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to sing about that peace as we stand together and sing, uh, When Peace Like a River. Benefit of our justification and our access to God that we have is, that wasn't mentioned in our passage. Well, when we are brought near to God, we're also brought near to one another, aren't we? And the barriers between ethnicities and social, the economic barriers and so on are broken down. And we can enjoy fellowship with one another. So I'd encourage you to stay and enjoy fellowship and especially to uh, um, welcome our newest covenant member to our church, Rejoice, and to rejoice with them. That wasn't intended as a pun, but... <laughs> anyway, with the words of Philippians 4, 8-9, to 9, I want to encourage you uh, to ponder, to meditate on, to soak your souls in the truths of Romans 5, 1-11. Paul writes, Finally, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there's any excellence, if anything is worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received, do, and the God of peace be with you. Amen. Our final song is a blessing of peace.